Hey, let's get our Bibles out tonight and let's turn to the book of Job. The book of Job. And I thought, wow, I'm coming to Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. These people love the Bible. And so I thought tonight we'd just study 42 chapters. Would that be okay? We're going to study 42 chapters tonight, but we're going to start by reading one verse. So if you'll turn in your Bible to Job chapter 31, verse 35. And the title of my message tonight, When God Doesn't Give a Reason. Job chapter 31 and in verse 35, Job cries out, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. Father in heaven, thank you for this church, its witness to this whole state of Virginia. Thank you for its good and faithful pastor and his wife. Lord, I pray you'll bless Calvary Chapel Lynchburg in the years to come, Lord. And Lord, bless us tonight as we get into your word, how we love you, Lord, and how we're thankful for your word. Without it, we'd be lost. It has the answers we need, and I pray tonight you'll give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. At a kid's summer camp, a counselor was leading a discussion on creation. He explained why God created the clouds and the trees and the rocks and the rivers and the animals. God had a good reason for all that he had created. That's when one little boy asked, if God has a good purpose for everything, then why did he create poison ivy? Well, his question was followed by dead silence. The counselor didn't know how to answer. Well, finally, another child came to the rescue. He explained to the class, the reason God created poison ivy is because he wants us to know there's a few things we just need to keep our cotton-picking hands off of. (laughs) A good explanation indeed. I believe when we get to heaven, every story begun in this life does finish with a happy ending. There is a good reason for everything God does. The problem, though, is that we don't always see his purpose. There are issues in life, like poison ivy, that cause great grief, and for no apparent reason. Some situations appear to have no sane, logical explanation, and we wonder why. How do you respond when bad things happen and God gives no reason why? As Christians, we believe that God is sovereign, that he does whatever he likes, whenever he likes, however he likes, to whomever he likes. He rules the universe, both good and evil. God is the boss. Read the first chapter of the book of Job, and you'll notice that Satan can't harm a single hair on Job's head without first getting God's permission. Nothing happens in our lives, or in the universe for that matter, that isn't at the very least permitted by God. Of course, God's sovereignty is a wonderful doctrine when circumstances are pleasant, when life is going well. We're delighted that God has chosen to bless us. But what's your attitude when life takes a turn for the worse 
and for no apparent reason. In my early years as a Christian, I had a friend who was a captivating Bible teacher. Dan had a growing ministry. He was a husband and a father of five kids. His teaching and his ministry were influencing thousands of lives for Jesus, including my own. I'll never forget the day I heard on the radio that the prop plane he had been flying had slammed into the side of a mountain. The news broke my heart. And I can remember crying out, God, why? Look at all he's doing for your kingdom, Lord. Why this? This is how I respond today when I hear of a hurricane that devastates an island or floods a coastline. Or a family on vacation killed by a drunk driver. Or a virtuous woman who's been raped. Or a school shooter who targets innocent kids. Or a hard-working husband who gets laid off and can no longer feed his family. Or a child born with a severe handicap. Or a follower of Jesus who's diagnosed with a cancer. Or a mysterious virus that attacks the population, killing people we love and shutting down our businesses. What happens to your faith when you encounter these kinds of terrible situations? How do you respond when bad stuff happens to good people, even God's people, and you see nothing good result? Have you ever asked why? Oh my. Have you ever screamed why? How do you deal with the poison ivy in your life? Well, Job dealt with plenty of poison ivy. For in the first two chapters of the book of Job, we learn how that overnight Job lost everything. His fortune, his family, his fitness, even his friends. And usually a man in such distress can lean on the comfort of a devoted wife. Oh, but not Job. You remember what Mrs. Job told him? Why don't you just curse God and die? Not exactly what you want to hear from the missus when you come home from a hard day at the office. I'm sure you've heard of the stress factor index. It's a set of numerical values that try to quantify the amount of stress produced by certain events in life. For example, the death of a spouse equals a 100 The death of a close family member is a 63. Fired from a job is a 47. A pregnancy is a 40. That's for the wife. It's 140 for the husband. (laughs) And on and on it goes. Well, the experts say that 79% of those whose stress factor index hits 300 plus suffer a major illness as a consequence. When I calculated Job's stress factor index... It added up to 650, twice the danger level. Hey, if you think you got problems, just check out our man Job. And here's the kicker. Job did nothing to deserve what had happened to him. Job gets vindicated from the outset. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that Job was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. In chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord himself says that all that happened to Job came upon him, and I quote, without a cause. Yes, Job was human, and like all humans, he was a sinner, but he had done nothing specific to warrant his calamity. If you doubt Job's devotion to God, just look at his initial reaction to his loss. 
In chapter 1, verse 21, there he utters these words. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To me, that's one of the strongest statements of faith in all the Scripture. Job chapter 1, verse 22, sums up Job's part in his many afflictions. It reads, in all this, Job did not sin. In Job chapters 1 and 2, we are told why all this devastation occurred in Job's life. We learn that Job got caught in the middle of a cosmic showdown between God and Satan. One day the devil appeared before God. And like a proud papa, God mentioned the piety of his servant Job. Well, Satan just scoffed. God, you've blessed Job so abundantly, why wouldn't he serve you? You've spoiled him. Just allow a little hardship in his life, and Job will turn on you in a heartbeat. Ironically, rather than being punished for some evil deed, Job's agony was caused by just the opposite. God was so proud of Job's devotion that he staked his honor on Job's reaction. Without knowing it, Job was serving as the appointed protector of God's glory. You know, whenever I read the book of Job, I'm struck by an often overlooked fact, and that's this. Job never read the first two chapters of the book of Job. He never did. See, we are told why he suffered, but not Job. Until the day he died, Job never got an explanation for his calamity. God never told Job why. But that sure didn't stop his three friends from trying to answer the question. And for the bulk of the book, chapters 3 through 31, three pals, if you want to call them that, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar take their turns offering explanations for the cause of Job's sufferings. I figure they were golfing buddies. They were a foursome that met every Saturday morning. And when Job didn't show up one week, they came to check on their friend. Well, when they arrive, they find Job. He's sitting in the middle of the ash heap. He's scratching his oozing sores with a broken piece of pottery, a clay shard. For seven days, they just sit there in silence, mourning for their friend. As it turns out, just sitting there with Job, being there for Job, was really the only benefit they offered. For when they opened their mouths, they tortured Job with erroneous counsel. In chapter 16, verse 2, he tells them how much help they were. He says, miserable comforters are you all. Job's golfing buddies are like many people today. They were trapped in a restrictive, defective theology. I like to call it a kindergarten theology. It's the simplistic view, it's the belief that in this life, sin is always punished and good is always rewarded. Thus, when bad things happen, it means that the victim must have committed some sin. And as kids, our experiences with mommy and daddy seem to confirm this belief. Parents see to it that your good deeds are prized and that your disobedience is punished. But then you move out into the real world, and you discover that's not always how life pans out. Bad things do happen to good people. Bad people often get away with their crimes. 
Circumstances are not always just. Life isn't always fair. You know, being a bit of a golfer myself, I've noticed how that golfing buddies particularly like to hold to this simplistic kindergarten theology. When a golfer hits an errant shot off into the woods and it caroms off a tree trunk and bounces back into the middle of the fairway, he'll often laugh and he'll say to his partner, Well, looks like I'm living right. As if holy living entitles you to favorable breaks while unholy living leaves you in the rough. Friends, I wish life were that straightforward, but it's not. And this is what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar refuse to admit. In fact, they become adamant. For 29 chapters, they scrutinize Job to uncover the slightest chink in his armor on which they can blame his demise. At points in the dialogue, they even make up accusations. Job's three friends try every tactic imaginable to pin a sin on Job. Tragically, there are also Christians today who hold to this same faulty theology. Listen to most of the TV preachers, and you'll hear them teach a kindergarten theology. Oh, do right, and you'll be rich. You'll be healthy and happy. You'll be driving that Lexus in no time. Trust me, TBN would have never invited Job to host a show. I have a friend. She suffers from chronic asthma. She is a godly lady. She is a woman of prayer. And yet her Christian friends insisted that her suffering had to be the result of some sin in her life. Her friends, like Job's friends, went to great efforts to pin a sin on her. Reminds me of a Peanuts cartoon strip. Anybody like Peanuts? Snoopy's standing there next to his doghouse. It's been burned to the ground by a fire. He's sobbing. I've lost my pool, my Van Gogh, all of my keepsakes. And that's when Lucy approaches him. And you know Lucy. She snaps at him. I can tell you why your house burned down. You sinned. And Snoopy responds with one of the best theological answers ever uttered. In fact, Snoopy sounds a lot like Job. He answers, See, here's the problem with this kind of defective theology. It backs you into a corner. So that when bad stuff happens, you only have two options. Either God failed or you sinned. And that's why Job's friends insist that the problem is Job. For if it isn't in their minds, it means that God has failed. And they're not about to entertain that possibility. In reality, though, neither assertion was true. The real cause of Job's sufferings was hidden in the heavens. Job knows there's a reason. There has got to be another option. But he just doesn't see it. And learning why becomes the burning issue In Job's life. Once there were two Americans. They traveled down to Mexico. To open up a bungee jumping operation. Well as they erected the tower. A curious crowd of locals. All gathered around to watch. Well finally it came time. For a test jump. One of the fellas. He dove off the platform. But when he bounced back up. His partner noticed. He was a little scraped up. He gasped. Oh no. The cord must be too long. He grabbed his friend. And he missed him. 
Well, the second time the guy bounced back up to the platform, he was in worse shape. He had some bruises and some broken ribs. Well, again, his buddy tried to grab him and he missed him. Well, the third time he rose back to the platform, the poor fellow was so badly beaten he was nearly unconscious. This time his sidekick lunged and grabbed him and pulled him in. And he asked him, he said, oh, was the cord too long? And his partner replied, no, the cord was just fine, but what's a piñata? If you didn't get it, ask somebody later and they'll tell you. But here's the moral of the story. Sometimes life gets rough. It'll beat you up and you don't know why. Or worse, it treats your partner, your spouse, or your coworker, or even your child like a piñata. And you get no explanation. He loves you, Lord. Why did this happen to him? Oh, Lord, she's such a godly person, not her. We've all asked these kinds of questions, haven't we? Job, too, was a good and godly person, but virtue didn't insulate him from pain in his life. And remember, it wasn't Job's sin that made him a target for hardships. It was his goodness. Don't be deceived. Just because a person is hurting doesn't mean they're sinning. And just because they're thriving doesn't necessarily mean that God is pleased. Hey, it does pay to be good and godly. But payday doesn't always come in this life. In the here and now, calamity can strike any of us, even the godliest among us. Difficulties can hit without explanation. Hey, faith doesn't always get a reason. So don't let life back you into a corner. When things go wrong, we think there are only two conclusions. Either God failed or I'm a failure. And since none of us are going to blame God, it's got to be me. And so we beat ourselves up. But remember the story of Job. When bad stuff happens, it doesn't mean that God has failed. Nor does it mean that you're a failure. There could be a reason hidden from view. Only heaven knows the whole story. And God is expecting you and I to trust in Him. And this is why our responses on earth really do matter. For in a mysterious way, unknown to you and me, God's reputation may be hanging on the way we handle a hassle or a hardship or a hindrance. God's honor in heaven, His glory, may be riding on your reaction to the twists and turns life throws your way. To me, the message of Job is the most practical in all of the Bible. It ups the ante on everything that happens in my life. My every reaction becomes strategic. Think of it. Every eye in heaven may be fixed on you to see how you handle that illness that you're going through. Or that lie that was told about you. Or that lawsuit that was filed against you. Will you fold? Or will you be faithful? See, this book teaches us a vital lesson, and that's this. The stress in my life may just be a test of my faith. Listen, Satan has accused the Almighty of stacking the deck, of buying our devotion with his blessing. He assumes that God is nothing more to us than a meal ticket, and he's thrown down the gauntlet. God nicks their blessing, and they'll stop their devotion. Do you realize that God may have chosen you 
to prove otherwise. God's character may be on the line in heaven. And it's your response to difficulty that wins the day. The stakes may be a lot higher than any of us realize. The one certainty is that our reactions really do matter. Well, I have no doubt that Job would have gladly suffered for God if he'd just been told the effect that his faithfulness was having in heaven. The problem, though, is that Job never got a hint. Understand, Job's greatest grief was not caused by his material losses or even the boils on his body. Job's most excruciating pain was not knowing why. I found the best pain reliever by far isn't Advil or Tylenol 3 or Demerol. It's an explanation. If there's a good reason behind my suffering, then I tend to rise to the occasion. But how do you respond when God refuses to give you a reason? It'd be like, it would be like going to the doctor to get a shot. I don't like shots. But if I'm told the reason for the shot, I can accept it and endure it and might even be thankful for it. But what if I were given a series of shots without being told their reason? Trust me, I wouldn't be as tolerant. In fact, I would get downright ugly and upset. I'd start pounding my fist down on the counter and demand to know why. And that is exactly what Job begins to do. He begins to pound his fist. And over the course of his dialogue with his three friends, Job demands more and more and more to know why. In chapter 7, verse 11, Job even grows bitter. He moans these words. I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. It's interesting the word complain occurs more times in Job than any other book in the Bible. Did you know that nearly half of the complaints recorded in all the scripture fall from the lips of this one man, Job? See, we speak of the patience of Job, but the person with the real patience in this story was God. For God was the one who had to put up with Job's spewing bitterness. Here's what happens. Job loses perspective. And that's easy for a sufferer to do. Job forgets who God is. His holiness, his rightness. Job grows bold and brash. And as he questions God in Job's mind, in his own estimation... Job becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and God becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. It's been said in asking why, Job loses his way. And by the time we get to our text, the verse that we read in the beginning, chapter 31, verse 35, Job believed God owes him an answer. In fact, he demands it in writing. He says, Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. Hey, God, I need a reason, and I want it in print. Arrogance has replaced Job's innocence. Job has become so sure of himself that he started to doubt God. And at one point in the dialogue, Job has the audacity to say to his friends, if my only options are I've sinned or God has failed, then God has failed because I certainly haven't sinned. Job, who do you think you are? 
Job comes perilously close to blasphemy. In his commentary on Job, author Don Baker, he makes this point about pain. He writes, pain speaks a strange language. It plays funny tricks on us. It makes us think things and say things and even believe things that are not true. When pain bores its way through human flesh and into the human spirit and then just sits there and hurts and hurts, the mind becomes clouded and the brain begins to think strange thoughts like God is dead or he's gone fishing or he just doesn't care. You see, pain was having this kind of an effect on Job. And toward the end of Job's discourses, he starts challenging God to speak. He charges God with giving him a raw deal. He accuses God of being unfair. In his attempts to vindicate himself, Job accuses God. Job ends up more into proving his own innocence than in upholding God's justice. In short... Job cops an attitude. Always remember, there are chapters in your story that God is yet to write. Zophar can only speak so far. God had a glorious outcome for Job. In the end, he got double the blessings he had before. But until the day he died, he never learned the why behind his trial. Friends, some situations have reasons that will only make sense when we get to heaven. Today we live a temporal, earthbound existence. And that's why it's wrong for us, from our limited perspective, to question or to criticize our eternal God. We're told in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Never forget one of the first rules of theology Where God has placed a period, don't you change it to a question mark. If God doesn't offer you an explanation, learn to live without one. Don't push it. Ultimatums don't work on God. We need to trust in His wisdom. See, here's the big question for you and me this evening. Can we trust God even when we can't trace Him? Oh, it's easy to praise God when we see His hand at work. When His blessings, even lessons, are tangible. But is your faith alive enough to survive in the dark? Did you hear about the four passengers that were traveling on a train from Lynchburg to Philadelphia? Did you hear about this? All four riders were seated in the same compartment. There was a Washington Nationals fan. There was a Philadelphia Phillies fan. There was a gorgeous young woman. And there was an elderly lady. And everyone was being very cordial to each other until the train passed through this long, dark tunnel. Suddenly, there was a loud kiss, followed by an equally loud slap. Well, when the train exited the tunnel, each passenger just sat there quietly looking at each other, trying to sort out what the noises had meant. The beautiful woman, she thought, isn't that odd? A Phillies fan tries to kiss an elderly woman and not me. The elderly lady, she thought, my, that young woman, she's a good girl. She has some fine morals. 
The Philadelphia fan, he thought, my, that Nationals fan, he's a smart guy. He steals a kiss and I get slapped. While the Washington fan sits there gloating, perfect. I kiss the back of my hand, slap a Philadelphia fan, and nobody ever knows. Here's the point. Sometimes things happen in the dark. And God chooses not to reveal his specific reasons. And if we're not careful, we can draw the wrong conclusions, can't we? We can. It reminds me of the little boy who was scared of the dark. Late one night, his mother asked him to go out on the back porch and fetch the broom. He balked. He said, but mommy, it's dark out there. The mother told him, said, honey, don't worry. Jesus is always with you. He's with you wherever you go, even when you're in the dark. The little guy, he walked to the back door. He cracked it open a fraction of an inch, and then he called out, hey, Jesus, if you're out there, how about handing me that broom? Realize God wants us to learn that Jesus is with us even in the dark places. He is. Well, how do you react when circumstances occur you don't deserve? Have you grown bitter? Have you become angry? Have you been demanding an explanation? Is your name Job? Well, let me show you how God finally responds to Job. It's very interesting. In chapter 38, God appears to Job, but not to answer his questions. No, God takes a most unusual tack. He comes to Job asking questions, not answering them. And for five chapters, God asks Job a series of questions he can't possibly answer. A total of 70 unanswerable questions. You see, the Almighty is about to show his servant Job that he doesn't know as much as he thinks he does. It's time for God to put Job back in his place. God appears to Job in the whirlwind. And he says to him in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 38, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, who's this guy I've been listening to who doesn't know what he's talking about? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Hey, Job, it's time for some humble pie. God is about to remind you that you spell the word God, G-O-D, not J-O-B. Well, in verse 4, God begins his quiz. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job had been instructing God on how to run the universe. But here God makes it clear that he doesn't really need Job's help. God was doing fine long before Job came along. God asked Job, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Oh, surely you know. God even becomes sarcastic. He's saying, okay, Job. When we measured the universe, was it you holding the other end of the tape when we measured that thing? I don't think so. See, throughout the book, Job's incessant questioning of God's wisdom implied that he could do a better job of running the universe than God. But could he? Can you? On and on, these questions continue. God keeps firing queries at Job that he has no way to answer. You know, it's interesting. As Job questioned God... In Job's estimation, he had grown larger and larger, and God had gotten smaller and smaller. 
But here when the roles are reversed and God begins to question Job, suddenly in Job's thinking, it's God who's becoming larger and larger and larger again. And it's Job who's becoming smaller and smaller and tiny. Job is getting taken down a notch or two, whittled down to size. Up against God's infinite wisdom, a finite Job knows very little. What right does he have to question or criticize the Almighty? I mean, who does Job think he is? What if I were out playing golf with Phil Mickelson? What's so funny about that? What if I was out playing golf with Phil Mickelson, one of the greatest golfers to ever swing a stick? What right would I have to start giving Phil pointers? Hey, Phil, let old Sandy here help you with your swing. Who's kidding who? But Job here is being just as arrogant. He's been trying to coach God on how to run the universe. Who in the world does Job think he is? Who in the world do you think you are? You see, Job has gotten way out of line. Here's a great quote. If there's anything a sufferer needs, it's not an explanation, but a fresh new look at God. See, we think we need an answer that will never be satisfied until we know why. But what we really need is a vision of God. For when God appears, the reason for the trial no longer matters. All that really matters is God. Well, Job thinks he's learned his lesson. Listen to his reply to God in chapter 40, verse 4. He says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Now, at first, it may seem as if Job has gotten the message, but I don't think so. See, what's happened? Job has simply gone from pounding to now pouting, from beating his fist to now sticking out his lip. In essence, he's saying, okay, God, you win. You've made your point. From now on, I'm just going to shut up and serve you. See, Job agreed to serve the Lord, but you can bet from now on, he's going to serve God with a grudge. And I got to ask you, do you know anybody tonight who's been serving God with a grudge? See, Job has accepted God's sovereignty for he has no other choice, but he doesn't really like it. Realize, God doesn't want us to pound or pout. There is a third option. We can praise God for who he is, come what may. God wants us to embrace his sovereignty with a loving, trusting wholeheartedness. See, you can say lovingly, Lord, thy will be done. Or you can say begrudgingly, all right, God, have it your way. And here Job is doing the latter. He's giving in only because he has no other option. And God is not through correcting Job's attitude. For again, God comes to Job in the whirlwind. And in chapter 40, verse 7, he says, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. God didn't like the first answers he got from Job, and so he has some more questions. And in chapter 40, God points to two enormous, powerful animals, the behemoth and the leviathan. And he asks Job if he can contain these animals, let alone create them. See, Job seems pretty puny when pitted up against these mighty forces. 
God is relentless in his humbling of Job. For he is after in Job what he wants from us. Not reluctance, but repentance. God wants Job and us to rejoice in his sovereignty. To worship him despite our situation. God wants us to acknowledge that he not only runs the universe, but he runs our lives and he's better at it than we are. God does all things well all of the time. You know, today, when a church like you guys builds a sanctuary, the architect is careful to optimize all of the sight lines so that it doesn't matter where you're sitting in the room, you can see all that's going on up front. There's not a bad view in the house. But did you know the Reformation architects of the great cathedrals in Europe, they had an opposite idea. They deliberately created worship venues where your view was blocked by a pillar or an awkward angle or a rail where you couldn't see everything that was going on up front. It was a reminder that there are some truths about God that are hidden, that no one knows all there is to know about God, that we all worship God from a limited vantage point. Well, Job finally realizes this truth in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. This time, when Job answers God, he humbly gets it right. He says this, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Obviously, Job has had a change of attitude. Friends, Job never did learn why, but he learned something much more valuable. He learned who. And when you really know who, you don't need to know why. There are people I know whose chief ambition in getting to heaven is to get answers to their questions. Oh, and I'm certain they're going to get their answers. But I am just as certain that in heaven, their answers won't be nearly as important as they thought. For when they see the beauties and the glories of our Lord Jesus... All of their perplexities and questions will be overshadowed. In the end, the who will swallow up all of the whys. Following the difficult days of World War II, King George VI of England, he made a statement to his countrymen about the uncertainties of the coming new year. I said to the man at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. But he said to me, Go out into the darkness and put your hand in the hand of God and it shall be better than the light and safer than the known. Imagine that. The hand of God. Better than the light. Even safer than the known. Some of you are walking out into uncertain futures tonight and you've been questioning God. Don't you think a better approach would be to grip His hand Just a little tighter. Once there was an old man. 
he was taking a walk with his young grandson. When he asked the boy, he said, son, do you know where you are? Nope, grandpa, I don't. Well, son, do you know how far you are from home? No, sir. Well, son, it sounds like to me you're lost. The little boy grinned. Nope, grandpa, I can't be lost. Grandpa asked him, he said, why are you so sure? The little guy replied, I can't be lost, grandpa, because I'm with you. And this is what God wants us to learn. That we, even when we don't understand, even with no explanation, we are never lost when we're with God. He can be trusted. Well, how do you cope with the poison ivy in your life? Here's what Job would tell us. God is sovereign. He is a big God. He takes orders from no one. He does as he pleases without getting our permission or giving us an explanation. That's why we need to turn off our complaints and our doubts and our questions. And we need to turn on our praise. For God is worthy to be worshipped. Love God. Don't fight him. Trust God. Don't question him. Real faith doesn't need to know why when it's certain of who. Always remember this statement. What's over my head is still under God's feet. You want to say it with me? You want to try it one time? Ready? What's over my head is still under God's feet. That was pitiful. I know you national fans would do better than that. You want to try one more time? Three, two, one. What's over my head is still under God's feet. God loves you. He loves you so much. In fact, God is so proud of you that he has staked his honor on your reactions to the difficulties you face. God believes that your response to difficulty is going to bring him glory. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. Thank you for this amazing story. And Lord, we can relate to Job. Lord, I have no doubt in my mind that there are some Jobs sitting in this congregation tonight who feel like they've gotten a raw deal who if, it, if they were truly honest tonight, would admit that they're mad at you. They've gotten upset with you. They don't feel like you've treated them fair. Things have happened and they don't understand. Lord, tonight, I pray that we all would surrender our doubts and our complaints and our questions and that we would fall into your arms tonight. And that we would trust you and believe in you for who you are and for your promises toward us. And for the amazing love by which, for which you've shown us. Lord, work in our lives this evening, Lord. Convict us, challenge us, help us, comfort us. We need it all. We need to hear from you tonight, Lord. And we want to rest and we want to learn, Lord, to trust in you. It's easy to trust in you when we're surrounded by blessings. 
But Lord, help our faith be strong enough to survive in the dark. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this evening and for speaking to our hearts. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.